Thank you for joining us for the Friday, December 10th reading of the Arapahoe County News. My name is Mary Ann. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. Free Food Market in Aurora Bridges Gap Between Food Waste and Hunger by Rocky Mountain PBS. School staffing shortages prompt top district administrators to fill in the blanks by Karina Julig. Progressive Democrats pressure Pelosi to discipline Boebert for Islamophobic slurs. And Colorado top election officials seek security protection by the Associated Press. Free Food Market in Aurora Bridges Gap Between Food Waste and Hunger by Rocky Mountain PBS Aurora More Colorado residents are in need of food than ever before. Food Bank of the Rockies said during 2020, the need for its service areas increased by upwards of 50%, and some months it climbed as high as 80%. Food Connect Colorado is working to bring those numbers down in this one area of the state. Aurora is very underserved with free food resources, said Elizabeth Watts, president of Food Connect Colorado. Every Thursday and the second Saturday of the month, the nonprofit associated with Food Bank of the Rockies opens its doors to a free food market. It acts just like a grocery store where people can come and choose the food and other items they need. That's what we strive for, to have like a normal experience here that people can come in and pick whatever they want, said Watts, you don't pay for anything. Everything is free. Basically, we wouldn't have food this week. If they didn't supply food for us this week and what I got last week, I wouldn't have anything to eat. We'd be eating probably noodles and beans, explained Bernadette Johnson. She is currently on disability with two grandchildren to take care of at home. Her husband is the only one working for the household. I can save close to 200 to 400 a month basically coming here because I can limit my meals by getting the fruits and vegetables and I can get help with the meat and especially the diapers because the diapers is the biggest, my biggest budget, said Johnson. Part of what makes this food option more beneficial than, say, a prepackaged box is the ability for people to pick out things for their individual needs. So, like, if I come twice a month, I've already got flour for the month, then there's no sense of getting flour again. Somebody else can get flour, and it helps someone else, explained Johnson. I don't have to worry about trying to, you know, overstock myself, and worry about how I'm going to be able to make it through the rest of the month. That is part of Food Connect Colorado's mission. The goal is to dramatically reduce food waste. We didn't pay anything for it. It's all free. We got it all for free because this is all rescued food that we pick up from various places and bring it to our warehouse. 
then we make it available to people who need it, said Watts. While the food is offered at no cost, there are some restrictions. A person must make an appointment to visit the market. To be able to shop there, someone has to live within certain zip codes and can visit up to twice a month. Still, Food Connect Colorado hopes to be that bridge for so many who need that extra help to eat. Food insecurity is a logistics problem, said Watts. It's mainly just getting the food to the people, and that's what we're doing. We're getting the food to the people. We're taking the food, bringing it here, and just making it available to anybody who wants it. School staffing sh shortages prompt top district administrators to fill in the blanks. By Karina Julig. Aurora. Normally, Aurora Public Schools Superintendent Rico Munn can be found in his Steelers gear decorated office at the district's administration building overseeing the need of the district's 38,000 students. Recently, he's been working with students in a much more direct way. Every Tuesday, you can find him at Aurora Hills Middle School helping out with whatever gaps the school most needs filled that day. Over at Yale Elementary School, Chief Technology Officer Jeff Konishi is supervising kids in the cafeteria, and instead of crunching numbers, Chief Financial Officer Brett Johnson is pitching in at Dalton Elementary School. Munn and every other administrative employee began working one day a week in a school building starting in November, part of APS's effort to deal with a pervasive shortage of substitute teachers and other district employees this school year. We're strained at all levels, Munn said. Hopefully this provides some level of support. It means that dozens of the district's upper-level executives usually making big decisions for the district, fill in as lunchroom monitors, office clerks, and handling myriad other tasks overloaded school employees can't get to. Until the district has a substitute pool of about 600 people to draw on, he said. Now it's below 300, and substitutes are taking fewer jobs than they used to. It's unclear right now whether the people that used to substitute will return to the workforce post-pandemic. If they don't, it will permanently alter the education system. Is this a fundamental shift in the nature of the workforce, or is this an 18-month hiatus, Mun wonders? APS is far from the only district dealing with this problem. Schools across the country are struggling to hire enough employees to keep things running smoothly, causing added strain to the existing employees and hindering what many hoped would be a return to normalcy after the tumult of the previous school year. According to a national survey conducted this fall by the Ed Week Research Center, 40% of district leaders said they were experiencing severe or very severe staffing shortages. The shortages were most acute for substitute teachers, bus drivers, and instructional aides. 
Cherry Wench, the director of Colorado Association of School Boards, said that teacher shortages have been a problem in Colorado for many years, and the pandemic has only exacerbated things. There are a number of factors playing into the issues, she said. Many substitute teachers are retirement age and stopped substituting during the pandemic due to health concerns. Districts are also struggling to offer competitive pay, and many employees are simply burnt out after the heavy workload of the past 18 months. What's being asked of teachers is a lot these days, Wrench said. Aurora school districts haven't been as hard hit as some others in the metro area. Denver Public Schools' staffing shortage was so severe that it temporarily moved to several schools. Excuse me. Denver Public Schools' staffing shortage was so severe that it temporarily moved several schools to online learning last month. Adams 14 School District, Boulder Valley School District, and Adams 12 Five Star Schools canceled classes the day after Veterans Day because they could not find enough substitute teachers and other staff. Cherry Creek spokesperson Abby Smith said, while the district is having staffing issues, we are not at a level where we are anticipating having to cancel school or go remote. It has particularly struggled to retain enough substitutes and has had to shuffle staff around at times to make ends meet, Smith said. To manage, it is limiting professional development conferences for teachers and other things that require using substitutes and is increasing its recruiting efforts. As of Tuesday, Cherry Creek had 200 job openings for external candidates listed online, and APS had 137 openings. It's definitely been a challenging year, said Keith Elliott, Regional Vice President for Kelly Services, a staffing company that contracts with school districts, including APS, to hire substitute teachers. Colorado is struggling slightly more than other states because it has higher qualifications, he said. Colorado requires substitutes to have a bachelor's degree, where some states only require a background check. Districts are also competing with a larger section of the workforce for employees, he said. Previously, they were mostly competing between themselves, but as wages in the restaurant and retail sectors are going up, they're competing with those industries as well. To compensate, it's offering more incentives. At APS, substitutes receive a $200 bonus after working 20 assignments. It started to look farther afield for recruits as well. Previously, Elliot said Kelly focused on people who were interested in teaching as a career. Now it's also searching for people who are interested in supporting their community and aren't necessarily looking to work five days a week. Elliot believes that as the pandemic subsides, the shortages will become less dire. Many retirement age substitutes plan to come back eventually, but are still concerned about COVID. We hear feedback from teachers. I'm going back eventually, but I'm not ready yet, he said.
Progressive Dems pressure Pelosi to discipline Boebert for Islamophobic slurs by the Associated Press. Wednesday. A group of progressive Democrats on Wednesday ratcheted up pressure on Speaker Nancy Pelosi to punish firebrand conservative Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado, whose recent comments likening a Muslim member of Congress to a bomb-carrying terrorist they decried as a bigoted incitement to violence that puts an entire group of Americans in danger. Inaction is to be complicit in Islamophobia, said Representative Ayanna Presley, a Massachusetts Democrat who is sponsoring a resolution to strip Boebert of her committee assignments. Without accountability, we embolden further action. As the politics of outrage have thrived, have thrived in the House Republican Conference in the wake of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, when supporters of Donald Trump fought police in brutal hand-to-hand combat as they tried to stop Congress from certifying the outcome of the 2020 election. But rather than discipline members of their conference who are making incendiary comments, Republican leaders have taken a hands-off approach as they chart a course to retaking the majority with the help of Trump's most ardent supporters. Democrats have tried to police the behavior on their own and have already stripped Representatives Paul Gossar of Arizona and Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia of their committee assignments. When it comes to Boebert, however, Pelosi has urged restraint, arguing that punishment will only give her the attention and fundraising boost that she needs. I don't feel like talking about what the Republicans aren't doing or are doing about the disgraceful, unacceptable behavior of their members, Pelosi told reporters Wednesday, adding that the responsibility is on them to do something. The approach has led to rising frustrations, particularly among progressive allies of Representative Ilan Omar, the Minnesota Congresswoman whom Boebert has repeatedly targeted with her verbal attacks. They argue that the rhetoric adopted by conservatives, including those in Congress, can have real-world consequences while giving license to discriminate. Omar said her office has reported hundreds of death threats to authorities, many of which are made after she's been subject to conservative attack. Other Democrats frequently singled out by Republicans, including New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have reported spending large sums of money on their security. This shouldn't need a press conference. We shouldn't be gathered here today. We shouldn't have to be asking for the bare minimum of protection and respect for our colleague, said Ocasio-Cortez, who was recently depicted being killed by Gossar in an animated video the congressman posted to Twitter. Gossar was censured and stripped of his committee assignments as punishment. Boebert was cavalier when asked about the Democrats' press conference. I am aware that on Wednesday at 2 p.m. in Studio A, 
Some people did something, she said in a one-sentence statement, which referenced the time and location of the press conference calling for her punishment. While Pelosi has been mum about whether she will punish Boebert, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, the number five Democrat, predicted Wednesday that at some point the House as a whole is going to have to act. It would be a constructive thing if my friends on the other side of the aisle would handle their own business in terms of the out-of-control members, said Jeffries of New York, who is the Democratic caucus chairman. But we haven't seen that level of accountability so far. The uproar over Boebert's remarks erupted last month when the first of two videos surfaced in which she compares Omar to a terrorist. Bobart has often repeatedly referenced Omar as belonging to a jihad squad as well as black-hearted and evil. In one of the videos, Bobart claimed that a Capitol Police officer approached her with fret on his face shortly before she stepped aboard a house elevator and the doors closed. I looked to my left and there she is, Ilan Omar. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack, we should be fine, Bobert said with a laugh, an apparent reference to her not carrying a suicide bomb. In another video, which is taken at a Staten Island, New York fundraiser in September, she offers a different take on the story, this time claiming she made the backpack remark about Omar after entering an elevator with a worried junior, junior staffer. Omar says neither of the events ever occurred. Republicans are unlikely to face lasting consequences if Republicans retake the majority during next year's elections. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is in line to become Speaker, has floated the possibility that anyone punished by Democrats could get a promotion. They may have other committee assignments. They may have better committee assignments, he said last month of Gosar and Green, who was punished for a broad spectrum of troubling behavior that included her endorsement of calls to assassinate prominent Republicans. Colorado top election officials seek security protection by the Associated Press. Denver. Colorado's Democratic Secretary of State is asking lawmakers for $200,000 annually for guards and other security-related measures after repeating, after, excuse me, receiving escalating threats over her advocacy of election security. Jenna Griswold has consistently debunked claims both locally and on national media, that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. She's also sued a Republican county clerk in western Colorado who is under federal investigation for allegedly breaching security protocols involving voting machines and has become a leading elections conspiracy figure popular with the right. With the online threats escalating, Griswold's office is seeking $200,000 annually from the legislature to address election-related concerns from the threats. 
The funds would pay for a vendor to track threats on social media and for guards for Griswold and some staff at public events, the Colorado Sun reported Wednesday. Griswold and local elections officials across the country have faced escalating harassment and threats in the aftermath of the 2020 election, which then-President Donald Trump and supporters contend was stolen by Democrat Joe Biden. No evidence of tampering has been found, and a flurry of lawsuits by Trump and his supporters challenging the results were tossed out of court. Like other agencies responsible for carrying out elections across the country, the Colorado Secretary of State's office has experienced an unprecedented spike in threats toward the Secretary of State and the office, said Griswold spokesperson Annie Orloff. Election administrators and workers have been the target of harassment, vitriol, and violent threats. Griswold's office said the threats have hurt hiring and retention of trained staff to administer elections. Her personal information has been posted online, the office says. Lawmakers who serve on the Joint Budget Committee, which will write the fiscal year 2022-23 budget when the legislature convenes last year, said they were open to the request. I can certainly see some need here, said Senator Chris Hansen, the Denver Democrat. We all saw an explosion of this kind of threat activity. Democratic Senator Dominic Moreno said the security request may be addressed through the state, state patrol, which is seeking increased funding for a team that provides security for Democratic Governor Jared Polis and the state capitol. Colorado Independent Ethics Commission this year denied an offer by the Democratic Association of, Secretary of Secretaries of State, which, which Griswold chairs, to provide private security for Griswold. The commission found that the state constitution bans gifts from the group, a political action committee for electing Democrats. Republican Wayne Williams, Griswold's predecessor as Secretary of State, said he and his staff received threats during his tenure, but nothing to the point that I thought it necessary to seek funding for security. But Williams said he knows election officials and workers have been subjected to more vitriol in recent years. He said that's part of the reason why he agreed to serve on the advisory board for an election official legal defense network, a nonprofit that provides lawyers for election officials facing harassment. Perry. Envy Bobertown on the other side of the state? A-Town might be opening its own show by Dave Perry. If you've been envious of the political spectacle that Republican Congressperson Lauren Boebert has inflicted on Colorado's Western Slope and the U.S. House of Representatives, you're going to love the new show at A-Town City Hall. The new grand old party has grabbed the reins of Aurora's city council, and by all early accounts, they're going to show Boebert 
How the New Right Gets Stuff Done Aurora Style. Gone, long, long, long gone, are the Aurora, Aurora Republicans of the past. Not on the political stage anymore are the likes of forever councilperson and mayor Steve Hogan. He prided himself on leaving the Democratic Party decades ago to pursue a way to guide smaller, less restrictive, reasonable, and effective government. Hogan wouldn't last 15 minutes among the new Republicans in the region who treat science, math, and the law as mere whimsy, something akin to following horoscopes. Gone are the likes of Barb Cleland, a Republican who was famous for aligning herself with causes, not partisan promises. Gone from the council dais are Republicans like Ingrid Lindemann, an East German immigrant who brought her experience as a public school teacher and her passion for pragmatism to each meeting, leaving her party affiliation at the door. Even before these new GOP city leaders were sworn into their seats on the dais this week, they began acting as a Republican bloc, not unlike the hot mess that has become Douglas County. If you forgot or didn't know, Douglas County commissioners and other officials there are confident that the pandemic is a political problem, not a medical one, best solved with powerful politics, not medicine. Team Doug Coe was infuriated that Tri-County Health Department would have the temerity to follow the scientific consensus from Colorado, the nation, and the planet and require people to wear masks when indoors as a proven way to slow people from discharging the deadly COVID-19 virus through their blowholes and into yours. If you think study after study hasn't provided that mask mandates slow the spread of coronavirus, turn off your Fox News feed and waltz right into reality. A few months ago, even more incensed that Tri-County would have the further, further audacity, and really, folks, you have to say that word, audacity, with firm pearls clutched in your best throaty cat-in-a-hot-tin-roof growl. To make children in schools wear masks in an effort to keep children and their families from getting sick and dying. The nerve. So they showed us. Douglas County packed up its clown act embedded into the Tri-County Board of Health and announced that they would invent their own health department that follows the GOP rather than a bunch of pesky, credible doctors and researchers. Apparently impressed by the wisdom of Douglas County Republicans, new and new old Aurora City Council Republicans followed their leaders. Recently, as Tri-County Health joined the health departments from Denver, Jefferson County, and Boulder in bringing back the indoor mask mandate to keep from destroying regional hospital systems, overwhelmed with sick and dying COVID-19 patients, they hatched a plan. Republican Council members Curtis Gardner, Francois Bergen, Mike Kaufman, and now former member Dave Gruber 
Join soon-to-be council members Dustin Zavonik, Steve Sunberg, and Janelle Jarinski to try and strong-arm city manager Jim Twombly into pulling an Aurora, excuse me, into pulling a Douglas County. In a letter posted to social media, the GOP caucus said Aurora should abandon the mask mandate because it would not fairly be enforced across the city. A sliver of Aurora lies within the boundaries and grasp of Douglas County, but no businesses that are open to the public. Suddenly, they became the first and only Republicans talking equity in the state. Advise that, ahem, the mask mandate applies not only to businesses, excuse me, advise that, ahem, the mask mandate applies only to businesses and not to residents, they switched their words. Then it became a matter of protecting Aurora businesses from the mad dash by shoppers to get to Douglas County Walmarts, where everyone can shop and infect each other freely as they watch each other scowl. If you were out and about in Aurora over the Black Friday shopping palooza, it was pretty clear maskless markdowns were not on the minds of anyone but the A-Town R-Team. If you're thinking this might have been a fluke and not a testing of the waters of front-range bobertism, you missed Monday night. The council band is back together, live and in person at City Hall again, after months of Zoom meeting isolation, just in time for swearing in the newly elected and re-elected members of council. Defying the mask mandate, they were, a, they were unable to thwart the meeting before. The GOP caucus brought their raised right hands but no masks to the public meeting. It's unclear who among these Republicans are vaccinated or boosted, but just a few weeks before, when pressed by reporters during a campaign debate, candidates Sunberg and Jarinski, both restaurant owners, said that at that point they were not vaccinated. The official line from City Hall is that they have no power to impose the mask mandate on these elected officials. That's a job for Tri-County Health, which issued the mandate. Officials there say, um, yeah, they take complaints and send stern letters about the mask mandate. Tri-County Health Department seeks voluntary compliance through education, technical assistance, and warning notices, Health Department spokesperson Becky O'Gwin said in a response to a query. However, the order may be enforced by any appropriate legal means. I can imagine that if I were a city staffer or lawmaker forced into a room with people who think Douglas County is going in the right direction when it comes to this pandemic thing and they refuse to wear a mask, I'd be pretty pissed that my job depended on my pretending to smile at them behind my own mask. If this is an indication of the same kind of science and politics the A-Town GOP caucus wants to use to solve other serious problems like gun violence, homelessness, mental health, struggling schools, serviceless elder people, immigration, and police reform. You can expect plenty of time watching the Lauren Boebert spin-off A-Town.
code red. Perhaps this was all a lapse of good judgment, or masks in the world of science and rule of law were simply left in the glove box, or something. Given that no one seems to be listening to successful Republican leaders of the past, rest assured everyone will be listening to the voices of Bobert and those whispering in local ears so we can be prepared. City Council meets in earnest next week, folks. Enjoy the show. Editorial. Before diving into ending Colorado gun violence, Get the Guns Away from the Kids by the Sentinel Editorial Board. While it will be months before police and elected leaders in Aurora can sort out the scope and causes of a recent plague of gun violence among youth in the region, one issue can be addressed now, gun access. The problem of guns in the hands of young children and teens is far from new, and it's hardly a problem unique to Aurora or Colorado. Statistics surrounding gun violence and youth are horrific. About 18,000 young children and teens are wounded by gunfire each year. An average of nine children under 18 die from gunfire every day in the United States, according to data compiled by the Children's Defense Fund. The deadliness of guns among our children comes in the form of children purposely or inadvertently shooting each other and themselves. Tragically, the Metro Aurora area is no stranger to any of this. An Associated Press story earlier this year reported that in the last decade, 312 kids under 20 killed themselves with guns in Colorado, about 31 children and teens each year, according to the Colorado Violent Death Reporting System. Nationally, reports show that it's more than 1,000 children each year. A horrific Aurora case in 2015 resulted in no charges against a father who carelessly left his handgun in a coat pocket, which was discovered by his 12-year-old son. The boy knew where in the house the bullets were. While having friends over with the parents not home, he got out the gun and inadvertently shot a 7-year-old friend in the head. This year, state lawmakers beefed up mandatory gun storage and lock laws, somewhat, Without a single Republican vote, Democrats during the last legislative session created mandates for safer gun storage and cable trigger locks, especially in homes with children. The gun, signed by Governor Jared Polis, caught headlines, but it comes with a bevy of loopholes, among them that a parent could get a buy from prosecution with the defense that a gun was left unlocked so a juvenile could defend themselves. Aurora police have so far not provided information where the students involved in most recent Aurora shootings have obtained their guns. Nationally, the story is much like the story locally. Years of reports show that homes have been and still are an easy place for juveniles to get guns. With about half of all Americans reporting they have a gun in the house, according to a recent Gallup poll, 
it's easy to see how guns are easy to come by for children. Notoriously, the boy accused of shooting and killing fellow students in a Michigan high school last week obtained the gun from his parents' home just days after they purchased it, police in Michigan said. Study after study reveals that, for years, guns are stolen from cars, inside homes, parents, and friends. They're sold among teenage friends, loaned, and given as gift. gifts. The lure of guns to teens is undeniable. In writing about teen shootings in 2018 Jacksonville, Florida, similar to recent tragedies in Aurora, interviews by the Time Union reporters of people convicted of past gun crimes were telling. Tony Brown is now 61 and serving time for a 1981 armed robbery he committed as an adult, reporters for the Times Union wrote. Guns are easy to get in the hands of these kids, Brown wrote in a letter to the Times Union. They are bigger and more powerful than the guns I had, and once he or she feels the power he or she has by just pointing it at someone, Nothing else will feel the same. A gun in a kid's hand is a powerful thing. While it's unclear what police, youth leaders, schools, and parents can do to persuade children to avoid guns and shun gun violence, it's unequivocal that it's unequivocal that we must get them away from young children and teenagers. Polis State and local leaders should convene a task force whose sole focus is finding ways to get guns from the young and teenage children who have them and to prevent them from getting access to guns in the future. Sentinel reports over the past few years about two recent high school-related shootings reveal children boasting and astonishingly cavalier towards having firearms and using them. When one of the boys accused in involvement in the Hinkley High School shooting was asked by police why he felt the need for a gun, his response made clear what Aurora and the surrounding region are up against. The boy said, it's the way it is in this town, according to the affidavit. Lawmakers and leaders must make it a priority to prove the boy wrong. Historically excluded from Colorado River policy, tribes want a say in how the dwindling resource is used. By CPR News. Lorenzo Pena pulls off the highway and into a drive-through water distribution center on the southern Ute Indian Tribe Reservation in southwestern Colorado. He parks his truck and connects the empty tank it's hauling to a large hose and thousands of gallons of water quickly rush in. Pena, who works for the Southern Indian Tribe's hauled water program, has made this trip countless times to deliver water to tribal members who don't have clean water piped to their homes from a local utility. It's pretty dry around here, Pena says, So if people have wells, they're real slow, or the wells aren't producing much water. 
If a family on the reservation doesn't use well water or lives outside of town, they have to haul water to fill their cistern to flow through their home. The Colorado River is a lifeblood for the Southern Ute and dozens of federally recognized tribes who have relied on it for drinking water, farming, and supporting hunting and fishing habitats for thousands of years. The river also holds spiritual and cultural significance. Today, 15% of the southern youths living on the reservation in southwestern Colorado don't have running water in their homes at all. That rate is higher for other tribes that rely on the Colorado River, including 40% of the Navajo Nation. Native American households are 19 times more likely to lack piped water services than white households, according to a report from Water and Tribes Initiative. The data show Native American households are more likely to lack pipe water services than any other racial group. Leaders of tribes who depend on the Colorado River say the century-old agreement on managing a resource vital to 40 million people across the West is facing a major factor fueling these and other water inequities. State water managers and the federal government say they will include tribes in upcoming Colorado River policy-making negotiations for the first time. Some tribal leaders view those promises as lip service and sent a letter to Interior Secretary Deb Holland in November asking for legal changes to ensure tribes are included in the negotiations. The tribes are a powerful voice to ignore. Collectively, they own rights to about a quarter of the water that flows through the Colorado River, a share that exceeds what some states have and includes legally superior senior water claims. The state slice of the river is only expected to grow as climate change and demand reduce the amount of water available to states whose newer water rights have less legal authority. Because of a lack of funding and infrastructure, the tribes aren't using all of their Colorado River water, but they want to. Like any government in the Southwest, tribal nations see water as a cornerstone of growing their communities and local economies while supporting the livelihoods and well-being of their members. Some communities in the West are halting development because they don't have the water to sustain it. If tribes were to use the full amount of water, uh, excuse me, if tribes were to use the full amount of the Colorado River rights they control, that could mean less water for some states already dealing with the first ever water cuts due to historically low levels in Lakes Powell and Mead. That uncertainty is one reason some states are hesitant to include tribes in river negotiations, says Becky Mitchell, the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. A nearly 100-year-old agreement split the Colorado River's water among seven states. In 1922, seven states in the Colorado River Basin Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and Nevada 
signed an agreement called the Colorado River Compact on how to equitably divide up the river to speed up development across the West. The execution of this congressionally sanctioned deal paved the way for massive federal investment in water infrastructure that has mostly benefited the states. Federally funded dams were built to create Lakes Powell and Mead so that the states could manage the river's flow to help uphold the compact's rules. Native Americans weren't considered U.S. citizens when the Colorado River Agreement was signed. Tribes were excluded from this agreement and had no direct say in how the water they relied on for millennia was divided. A racial injustice tribe leaders say continues to hurt their members. The agreement left unsettled how much water tribes could take from the Colorado River, and many tribes throughout the river's basin are still fighting to resolve the issue today. The U.S. Supreme Court provided some clarification in the 1960s when it adopted a standard that reservations are entitled to as much land as they could irrigate. Before this, tribal water rates were, excuse me, before this, tribal water rights were largely ignored as Lakes Powell and Mead filled with the water meant for the states to use. State law prevents some tribes from taking water from the river if they can't prove how much is theirs. The situation has blocked tribal governments from accessing federal funding to build their own reservoirs, pipes, and treatment facilities to direct clean water to their citizens. The Colorado River is drying up from climate change and growing demand on a river system that was over-allocated from the start. Drought conditions forced states to negotiate a new set of Colorado River rules in 2007. The 30 federally recognized tribes in the basin were also excluded from this process. Those drought rules are set to expire, so the states need to agree on a new way to best manage the river by the year 2026. The tribes, now recognized as sovereign governments, are calling for equal power in the upcoming policymaking process, the results of which will shape how the river is managed for years. So far, the tribes have only, excuse me, so far the tribes only have promises that they'll be included. That's not enough for many tribal leaders who want a legally granted seat at the negotiating table. In the letter to Interior Secretary Deb Holland, a coalition of 20 tribes said that their involvement in ongoing decisions about the Colorado River is necessary due to their effects on the decades-long drought. The letter calls for the U.S. government to ensure that the tribes are included in developing and carrying out the policies and rules that govern how the Colorado River is managed. The tribes want the next framework to recognize and include support for tribal access to clean water. Not all southern youths have access to clean water. Pena has delivered water on the reservation for a few years. He said he was fortunate to grow up with a well, so his family didn't have to haul water. Other people in the community can't afford delivery and have to drive miles in their own trucks and water tanks to get what they need.
If the weather's bad or a truck breaks down or the supply runs out before a family can make another trip, families might go days without clean water. Without a reliable and easily accessible clean water supply, these households struggle to shower, clean their homes, or prepare healthy food. Lorelei Cloud, a member of the Southern Ute Tribal Council and a leader of the Water and Tribes Initiative, grew up on the reservation in a home without running water. At an October law conference at the University of Colorado, Boulder, Cloud shared her family's experience of filling up water tanks at her uncle's house with his garden hose. Cloud's family had to ration their supply to ensure it lasted the whole weeks. week. A few times, it didn't last for that week. We actually got water from the irrigation ditch in front of the house, boiled that, and used that, Cloud told conference attendees while tearing up. When she was 12, Cloud moved to a new home that did have running water, but it was contaminated with methane, which can occur naturally or enter a well from a nearby oil and gas development. It wasn't just in the water, but it made the whole house smell like methane, and that ended up becoming a normal part of our life, she said. Cloud's son still lives in that home, and he recently ran out of water. It's unclear whether the well dried up or the pump stopped working, but Cloud said her son has had to take showers at her home while they figure out the problem. Manuel Hart, chair of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, said in, in southwestern Colorado, said excluding tribes from helping create and update the river's regulations is another example of the U.S. government marginalizing Native voices. Hart said, the, Hart said the federal government and states need to apply the government-to-government -government tribe consultation policy to river negotiations, since those actions and decisions will have a substantial and direct effect on tribes. Everybody is growing population-wise, and their needs are growing, Hart said. You've got to include tribes in that, too, because they, too, are part of that equation. Hart said these consultations could lead to other solutions to better manage water in the Colorado River. One possibility is where tribes sell leases for farm irrigation water to increase reservoir levels and use the proceeds to help pay for the operation and maintenance of aging water infrastructure. One of the most significant issues on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation is cast iron and clay pipes installed in the 1950s that are clogged with sediment and tree roots, Hart said. Homes in the town of Tawoek on the reservation didn't get indoor plumbing until the 1980s. Hart remembers his family driving 15 miles to Cortez to do laundry and take showers when he was younger. Desperate to get water to the town, the tribe negotiated with the federal government. The Ute Mountain Utes gave up senior water rights dating back to 1868 for funding to build McPhee Reservoir. It's filled with 1988 junior water rights, which are susceptible to cuts during drought. Hart feels the deal was wrong. 
We just got backed into a corner, take it or leave it. It's difficult to know what might have happened over the past 100 years if the tribes were included in the negotiations of the 1922 compact. Hart believes Ute Mountain Ute Tribe wouldn't be in a position where it needed to give up valuable water rights for access to clean water. With the worsening droughts long mega excuse me, with the worsening decades-long mega-drought, the water supply in McPhee Reservoir is dropping. Hart said the tribe is only getting about 10% of their share of water, which has cut into farming revenue needed to pay for operation and maintenance costs of the reservoir itself. Looking out his office window, Hart reflected on the lack of snow. Much of the reservation is in extreme drought. It feels like summer here, and we're in November. If I remember, when I was a child, we already had snow on the ground. Tribal representation at official negotiations could lead to better water rights quantification data. Hart said one way to make tribal voices official in river negotiations would be to appoint a tribal representative on the Upper Colorado River Commission, which was created through Congress and includes water officials from Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and New Mexico. Hart said federal legislation is needed to amend that to include a spot for the tribes. Hart is hopeful that representation in negotiations will mean that all tribes in the basin will finally have their water rights quantified. Some tribes, like the Navajo Nation and Hopi tribe, still don't know how much water they can use because of the way the U.S. government sets aside water for each individual reservation. Many of these water rights date back to when the reservation was established and predate the Colorado River Agreement, giving them a valuable legal distinction because they cannot be curtailed during a drought. Thank you for joining us for the Arapaho County News. My name is Mary Ann.